Well, if you've uh, been with us over recent weeks, you'll know that we've been on something of a journey as a church for three weeks, thinking about what it looks like uh, to live different, or perhaps to put it a different way, to live the set-apart life, which is how the Apostle Paul refers to it in Scripture, to be set apart. In fact, it's something of a, a favorite theme of his. Do you remember way back at the beginning of September, the sun was still shining and we were all turning up in shorts? Uh, In a sense, our flight took off as we unpack Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul, who writes the letter to the Romans, describes the problem that we as humanity face. Do you remember it? The doo-doo verse. The doo-doo verse. Romans 7, 15, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, I do-do. There's the doo-doo. And that's how our series took off, in a sense, defining the problem. And we discovered, look, the problem for us as humanity is our wrestle with our sinful natures. It's the wrestle that we have with those bits of us that would seek to rebel against the perfect will of God in our lives. That was our takeoff. And then we spent a couple of weeks, didn't we, in mid-flight without too much turbulence and with no refreshments as we opened up the various themes of of Romans chapter 8. If Romans chapter 7 defined the problem, then Romans chapter 8 unpacked the solution over two weeks. Didn't we hear some good news? That God has done something about the problem of our sin. God doesn't just identify that there's a problem, Romans chapter 7, but he goes on Romans chapter 8 to actually do something about that problem. And as we discovered last weekend, as a consequence, if we trust in Jesus, we can become children of God. We can cry out the most intimate name to God that there is, which is Daddy. We can call him Daddy. But more than that, Paul went on to say, we become co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted into the most incredible inheritance for the rest of eternity. One of my favorite scripture verses in the whole of scripture, Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. No condemnation. As we've discovered over these last three weeks, we'll discover a bit more today. As Christians, we can live without guilt, without shame, and without remorse, which can be so debilitating. Why? Because God has done something about those things. We were thinking, weren't we, that Satan's greatest delight would be for you and I to get stuck in a place where those things actually define who we are, our guilt, our remorse, our sense of shame. But Jesus came to die for you, and as Jesus died for you, you are completely forgiven from all of those things that you wrestle with. So I wonder, what can we say this morning with absolute confidence? Well, we can say this, any condemning feelings that you might have towards yourself today are not from God. You might feel a sense of conviction as we worship together today, but if you're feeling any sense of condemnation, then those feelings do not come from God. God's greatest desire for you is that you would be free, that you would move forward in your relationship with Him as you seek to find His plans and His purposes for your life. Our God longs for us to live what we might call the unchained life. God wants us to experience freedom daily, fully, completely, which is exactly the message that the Apostle Paul ended Romans chapter 8 with, as we were thinking about last weekend. Those incredible words, we're not just conquerors, he says, we're more than conquerors if we're in Christ Jesus. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in the whole of creation, he says, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul's great desire for the church in Rome, and in a sense I would say to us today, God's great desire for us as his children today is that we would understand the depth of how much God loves us. Now, some of us know that already intellectually. We can say, yeah, I know I'm loved by God, but actually we've never experienced that love personally. And there is a world of difference between knowing something in your head and really deeply knowing it in the depths of your heart. So Romans chapter 7 describes the problem. Romans chapter 8 describes the solution. Now, we're going to skip over them today, but chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans then go on to develop this theme, this idea that this good news is not just for God's chosen people, the Jews, but it's for all people. And then we get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we discover our third therefore in this series. Romans chapter 12, to go back to my plane analogy, is where our plane lands today. And it's where Paul, having identified the problem in Romans 7, offered the solution in Romans chapter 8, deals with what we might call the, the so what question. The so what question. What do we do with all this truth that we've known? His point today is to bring some application. If you've got a Bible, uh, chapter 12 uh, of Romans, I'm going to read just two verses. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. So for 11 chapters in this letter to the Romans, using all sorts of really complicated theology and difficult doctrinal themes and words, Paul has been speaking about God's abundant grace in Jesus. He's been describing for 11 chapters God's amazing story of relentless grace. That's what it is. God tells a story of relentless grace, that a grace that continues to pursue us even when God's people have been expressing what we might call reluctant faith. Can you identify with that? Is your faith ever reluctant? Is it sometimes reluctant or resistant or maybe even redundant when it should be rejuvenated and rejoicing? You've no idea how long I spent in a thesaurus for that. But would you know this morning that God's grace is for you? God's grace for you is relentless, it's persistent, it's non-stop, it is continuous. There's a sense that Paul has been building up his theological argument, and it's been growing and it's been growing ever since chapter 1. And as he starts to write the words of chapter 12, it's almost like this is a great crescendo in all that he's trying to say. If he was writing a musical piece, this would be the moment where the music goes really loud and, and dramatic. In a sense, the very first word of chapter 12 becomes the, last, the loudest point in his message. Chapter 1, mumble, mumble, mumble. Chapter 2, building, building, building. And he goes right the way through uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. There was a bit of a high point in chapter 8 as we were thinking about. And then he gets to chapter 12, and there's this loud, therefore, with the sound of trumpets and rolling drums and all sorts of amazing stuff as he says, therefore. Paul's therefore at the beginning of chapter 12 is an attention-grabbing therefore. It should grab your attention. Now, as all you English purists know, therefore is a conjunctive adverb, an essential bridge over which you have to travel so that what's about to be said makes sense in the light of all that's been said before. Okay, I said that for the English purists. 
But in short, Paul's great cry in verses 1 and 2 is a cry which is simply saying, would you surrender? Surrender. In the light of all that I've said already about humankind's problem in chapters 1 to 7, in the light of all that I've said already about God's faithful solution in chapters 8 to 11, therefore, chapter 12, would you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God? Therefore, surrender. Now, oftentimes when I think about the word surrender, I think of surrender being a very weak and kind of defeatist act. Even as I say it, would you surrender? It's probably conjuring up in your mind the the image of an overpowered army waving a white flag of surrender because they've been defeated. Or maybe the image of a, a boxer whose coach is chucking in the towel because their fighter is completely finished. But as Paul makes this call here at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, he's not describing surrender as being a negative thing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. As Paul is calling us to surrender, he's saying surrender is powerful. Surrender is power-filled. Surrender is the ultimate sign of spiritual strength. It's not a weakness. He says that the very act of surrender is the greatest possible expression of our worship. When we surrender, we're able to properly and fully worship God. Surrender continually declares that we're done with doing life in our own strength. And instead, it's saying, God, I need you. I need you to walk this journey of faith with me. Surrender uh, is an act of worship in the economy of God. Now, we know, don't we, and I know I'm speaking to the converted, that worship is not just about singing songs within the context of a 